Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. to Nightlight. I'm so excited for you to be here with me tonight. First, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please seek him out on the internet. He is an amazing Native storyteller, and his story is as amazing as he is. Check it out. It's, it is uh, an adventure for sure, and an education. I have with me tonight one of my favorite authors. I have James Tabor with me, and we're going to be talking about his book, the Jesus Discovery. Um, it is a remarkable book, and it is it is uh, the story of a stunning new discovery that provides the first physical evidence of Christians in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus and his apostles. In 2010, using a specialized robotic camera, authors James Tabor and Simka Jakubovici. Uh, explored a previously unexcavated tomb in Jerusalem from around the time of Jesus. They made a remarkable discovery, two ossuaries or bone boxes, one carved with the earliest known image of Jonah, the other displaying a reference to resurrection. Since the newly discovered ossuaries can be reliably dated to before 70 AD, it is possible that whoever was buried in the tomb knew Jesus and heard him preach. In addition, the newly examined tomb is in close proximity to the so-called Jesus family tomb, and its discovery increases the likelihood that the Jesus family tomb is indeed the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. James Tabor is a professor of Christian origins and ancient Judaism in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where he has taught since 1989. Previously, he held posts at Notre Dame and William and Mary. 
He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies and Early Christianity from the University of Chicago and is an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls and Christian origins. You can't get better than that, folks. So welcome to the show, James. I'm so glad we finally got technical difficulties out of the way and we can plow into this amazing book. Um, Well, thank you, Barbara, uh, for that great introduction and yeah, we've we've had a couple of glitches, a uh, storm, and <laughs> technical things, but that's happened before to us. So you know, we just kind of fight uh, all those negative forces and and move ahead. And I know we're going to really enjoy uh, tonight and exploring this really fascinating topic. Oh, it, so, it is, and, and you know, for for those people who don't have a background in understanding the tombs and the, the ossuaries and, and the practices of the day. You know, you want to give us a little bit of foundational background before we plow into the meat and vegetables here? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, in the first century CE, or AD as, as Christians say, but CE is more the historical designation, uh, nothing against Christian chronology, but just to be more universal, include Jews and really everybody in the world. So before the Common Era, uh, in that first century, the time of Jesus, we would say, certainly for Christians, and most people know that time, um, the way the dead were buried, particularly in Jerusalem, and that's the capital in the south, But to some degree throughout the country, this is the case, but mostly in Jerusalem, there were cave tombs. Now, these can be natural tombs cut into the limestone hills around Jerusalem on three different sides. You have uh, north and south and some particularly on the east, Mount of Olives. Or they sometimes could just be newly carved tombs right out of the bedrock. And... They're smaller than people would think. Uh, The one we're going to talk about is 11 feet by 11 feet. So I'm sitting in a typical little bedroom-sized place right now. So the tombs, uh, about the size of the room, you know, that many of us would have in our homes. We'd probably have a 12 by 12 room somewhere in our homes. And that would be the uh, size of this particular tomb that we're going to talk about, the Jesus family tomb. And the other one is just a little bigger. So don't think of them as just, you know, going into these monumental caves. And if you went into the tomb, it's going to have a small carved entrance. It would only be about two meters by two meters. So you've got to crawl through the entrance. And once you go into the cave, it drops down probably about uh, six to eight inches, maybe ten inches. And then if you stand up, it's just about two meters. So you could, if you're tall, you're going to hit your head. But because it's kind of dug out in the center, you can stand. And that's in order to uh, take care of the bodies. You know, you don't have to go on your hands and knees in order to do what you need to do. But to get in these tombs, you have to stoop in these tombs. And then uh, that's in order for it to have a blocking stone. And the blocking stones are of two kinds. Uh, One is a disc that rolls across the tomb uh, and kind of blocks it up that way. It's on a little uh, 
little ramp or trough that it rolls on. That's the one you see in all the movies for the Jesus tomb because there is a reference in the Gospels to rolling away the stone. Uh, and we've got some pop music that makes use of that, but we won't go into that about roll away the stone. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but actually the Greek word uh, can mean just pull back the stone, not necessarily a round roll. And so the other more common way of sealing a tomb, it's almost like putting a cork into a bottle, but it would be square. So you kind of force the uh, a blocking stone in and push it in and wedge it in, and it makes a pretty much of an airtight seal. And so when someone dies, uh, a family would have a family tomb, a cave like that, and these tombs then inside would have niches that go back about the length of a body and a little further. So let's say maybe eight feet, uh, like almost like little tunnels going off from the central tomb in which you could put uh, bodies. And also the one we're going to talk about in particular, the Jesus family tomb, has two shelves. Uh, All of the tombs don't have shelves, but the shelves... If they have shells, it's very convenient because you can lay the body out when somebody dies and do the different rites of burial and so forth. And typically what would happen then is somebody dies and you take the body in and you wash it, usually outside in the courtyard. There's always a little courtyard uh, carved around and uh, clean it and get it ready. And then you take it in, it's shrouded and you cover it with these spices uh, that are basically, to be frank, Barbara, to keep the odor down, you know, because the, the body's going to rot. No embalming, uh-huh. no preservation, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. They didn't uh, tend to cremate. That's more of a Roman thing. Uh, the idea is to let the body go back to the dust, not burn it and spread the ashes And there's the idea of kind of keeping the part of the body, which would be the bones. So after about a year, uh, maybe a little longer, the family would uh, go back to the tomb. Now, remember, it's been sealed for a year. You don't open it. Now, if somebody else died during the year, you could open it and put another body in. But typically, you know, we hope in a family you wouldn't have so many deaths in one year. It could happen. And the body will be decomposed and I have actually, not this tomb, but I describe in the book other tombs that uh, I've been involved in discovering. And there's another one that Shimon Gibson, he's the archaeologist that teaches also here at UNC Charlotte. He's Israeli and British and also now is teaching here in America. And we, by accident, found a tomb in the year 2000. By accident, I mean we were hiking in the Hinnom Valley, just south of Jerusalem, showing our students uh, these tombs that are sealed. Even from the first century, they're sealed. Uh, Believe it or not, you wouldn't think they would have lasted that long, but a lot of them have been covered over. And they're finally, you can see some of them exposed, the entrance of the caves. And uh, one had been freshly robbed. And we went inside, and we found a skeleton inside in the lower chamber in one of the niches that still had the burial shroud on it. And I had the 
fabric carbon dated. I sent it to the same lab in Arizona that did the Shroud of Turin, which I we won't talk about tonight because that would really get us into another subject yeah. that I'm sure you've covered in the past. But this was a burial shroud, and Dr. Donahue did it, the same person that, that did the uh, – the, it's University of New Mexico, did I say, or is it, no, I think it's Arizona, I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up, University of Arizona, Doug Donahue, and it came out first century, so, you know, we knew that this tomb, even though it had been freshly robbed, that we were in for the first time uh, since the first century, because it had that body still intact, it was pretty well desiccated, so I, I've seen these tombs uh, when they've been discovered, and what you will see if they haven't come together the bones, which you do find sometimes, uh, and I'll get into that, why that would happen. Uh, but usually after about a year, uh, there's a little bit of desiccation on the bones, but the organs are gone, and basically it looks like a, a decaying skeleton. And you gather the bones together, and they're put into these limestone boxes. They're cut out of a solid piece of soft limestone. They typically are the length of a femur bone. So if you look down at your thigh and kind of measure it, you know, get a ruler out or whatever, they're not custom made for individuals. So typically, say, 25 inches to cover, you know, tall people. And that would be the largest bone lengthwise. And then typically maybe 12 inches wide for the skull. That would be the thickest bone is actually your skull. And then maybe 10 inches high, 10 or 12 inches high. So a stone box with a lid, there can be decorations and artwork on it. There can be writing on it. And that's where it really gets interesting because of the 900 cave tombs that have been found from the period of the first century, 900, and why so many? Building. The bulldozers are the great discoverers of these tombs because there's building projects all over Jerusalem. And as the bulldozers grade and cut into roads and hillsides and so forth, they come across tombs. Everything stops. The archaeologists are called in, and uh, the inside of the tomb is examined and so forth, and we can talk about that when we get to the specific uh, first tomb found in 1980 and how it was handled. So out of those 900 tombs, we've got about 3,000 ossuaries. You would only be able to maybe catalog 2,000 because, unfortunately, uh, for about 100 years, people sold them as souvenirs, so we don't have records of a lot of them, but we know where some of them are. A lot of museums have them. You could go to any number of museums in Europe and America, and you would find uncatalogued ossuaries from Jerusalem from this period. So if you put all together what we know, probably 3,000 or so, but 2,000 that are in, in Israel itself that we could actually study and count that had been found in the, in the last, say, 75 years. Now, of those, Barbara, uh, 650 of the 2,000 are inscribed. So you don't always inscribe. It just depends. It's not an announcement of who's there, typically you put a name on. So it might say uh, Miriam 
of, and then maybe give her father's name, say Shimon, Mary, daughter of Shimon, or something like that. Or it could be a, a, a man. You know, it might say Yochanan, John, uh, Bar Yehoseph, uh, John, son of Joseph. So for a family, this is just to help them remember. Uh, you know, somebody might say, oh, yeah, I know what, uh, you know, Joseph's ossuary looks like, whoever you're talking about. These are common names. But you would scratch it on the side. Usually those inscriptions of the names are graffiti-like. They're done with a nail or some kind of pointed metal object. So they're not, you know, fine inscriptions. But often a wealthy person would hire somebody to make a kind of an elegant description. So like a high priest or something like that. Although one of the most famous tombs ever found, 1990, this would be 10 years after the tomb we're going to talk about, the tombs we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about two of them, uh, was actually, we think now, the family tomb of Caiaphas, the high priest who presided over the trial of Jesus in the New Testament. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, who had been previously high priest, and Annas, he has five, I believe it's five of his sons are also high priests, kind of spread throughout the time of Jesus. Think of it as like the priestly mafia of the time. Even the Talmud, our main Jewish source, uh, uh, looking back on that, is not very favorable to this Annas family since they were corrupt priests. They weren't well-liked. And these are the ones that Jesus denounced as a den of thieves. Remember when he went into the temple, he said, You're, you people are corrupt, you're a den of thieves. Anyway, and they were mm-hmm. because they were ripping off the people. But Caiaphas's tomb uh, was found, and his bone box has Yosef Kaffa, Joseph of Caiaphas, son of Caiaphas. And guess what? It's just scratched in graffiti, even though he's the high priest. The family did not see the point of hiring some engraver to do a really formal. So 99% of them just look like the family just scratched the name in. We can usually read it. Now, sometimes they would add an epitaph, just like we do on our tombstones. Uh, They didn't put dates of birth and burial or death like we do. But they would uh, maybe put something uh, equivalent to, like, rest in peace, or sometimes they'll say, do not disturb, or something. Now, tonight we're going to talk about an inscription that said much more than that when we get to that, and you already alluded to it. So that's sort of the background. Now, there's a story in the New Testament that some of your listeners will remember. A man wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, yes. Uh, follow me right now let's go and he goes oh oh I want to but I've got to first bury my father do you remember that got to first go bury my father and Jesus says well if you got to go first bury your father let the dead bury the dead which is taken as kind of a sharp statement by most people now some people think it means like he died his father died like yesterday and Jesus is saying uh Don't even go to the funeral tomorrow. That's not it. What he's probably saying, and many of us in the field that have studied it have suggested this, is let me complete the first year Jewish rites of burial, 
let's say his father had just died. You know, let me bury, finish burying my father is really what it means. And then I'll come in about a year. I'll see you. And Jesus is so at that point in his life, there's not a year to waste. It's like, you know, you just have to make up your mind because we're headed for Jerusalem and so forth. So uh, that's just an interesting little sidelight. So you're, the bones are gathered. They're put in these limestone boxes <clears throat> or chests, really, of the dimensions that I described. Gradually, they will finally deteriorate, even bones. But I've looked in a lot of ossuaries, and some of them intact. And we used the camera to get into some of these. I'll tell you what we saw as we get into it. And you can still see the skull very clearly. You can see some of the bones, and it just depends on the age. The other thing is how dry the tomb is. You know, every tomb is different. Some are more moist just from the environment and the cliff or rock facing that it was cut out of. And others, <laughs> if they are more dry, I'm going to sip some water here. Others would be, uh, maybe would take longer to decompose. It's moisture and sealing. You know, when you really seal a tomb and it's dry, uh, just like in Egypt, even though this is in the mountains, uh, Jerusalem is uh, up in the mountains, it, uh, it, the bones can last a long time. So this practice was uh, from about, let's say, 50 BCE, about 50 years before Jesus, till 70 CE when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So about 150, well, 70 and 50, and it's not exactly like 50 BC. So I like to say 150 years that this is being done, you know, because it's not like an exact date. Uh, uh-huh. And so that this is the way it was done, particularly in Jerusalem. Now, some people have argued that only wealthy people could have these tombs. We know now that that's not the case because we're finding just single, you know, all kinds of families and people that are not like Caiaphas, who's a high priest. And even Caiaphas, his tomb is very modest. It's not, even though he is the high priest of Israel, it's not a monumental tomb. There is a sense to be humble about birth, you know, I mean about death, that uh, that maybe the new birth into, into the next world, but sometimes they refer to it to it that way but I meant to say death Uh, there's a modesty about it you know not to be ostentatious and to try to say that I'm great and look at my monumental tomb now some of the kings and certainly Herod the Great you know he wanted a marvelous tomb at what's called the Herodium south of Jerusalem but this can be common people family tends to be families now, who's in one of these tombs? This is this becomes important, and then well, I think we'll have enough background to talk about the discovery. Typically, it would be the father and the his wife, the mother. So then it would become his tomb, and then any sons or unmarried daughters. Now, I say unmarried daughters because if the daughters are married, they would go in their husband's tomb. You see, there'd be a different tomb. Uh-huh. And then any children that are minors, you know, who are not yet married, of any of those brothers uh, that are also in the tomb, and the wives of the brothers. 
And so basically it's a, the, what we would say the nuclear family, the close family is buried. If a woman uh, is a widow and can't be buried in her husband's tomb, and that might be the case in this tomb, then she can be buried in her son's tomb, you know, staying with the family. Because there could be circumstances where there's not always a father. Maybe he was killed in war or exiled or the Romans took him off in slavery or something like that. So that's basically the background. And I think the practice became so popular because there's a growing faith in resurrection of the dead. Uh, This is not my theory. It's a theory that various scholars in my field have suggested. Because the one thing about an ossuary that's really different is it individualizes the death of the deceased. In other words, you're putting a name on it. You're saying, that's Simon over there. That's Yochanan. You know, that's Joanna. That's Sarah. That's Shimon. And you're naming them as individuals. Whereas if you go back to the Iron Age, which would be in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament period, They also did cave burials, but they just put all the bones together in a pit, totally undifferentiated, in a big pile, because God will sort all that out. Kind of like (laughs) the book of Ezekiel. Remember that story, the Valley of the Dry Bones? They're all just together. But the ossuary idea is an individualization of death, and very possibly the idea of... uh, coming out of the tomb, being resurrected of the dead, from the dead. Uh, it's not as though God has to have bones, you know, like I need a bone, you know, in order to have a resurrection, because we'll talk about that as we go on. The view of resurrection was more what you might call a spiritual resurrection. It's not just the resuscitation of a corpse, but uh-huh. it's just the idea of a locus, like a, a tomb with an ossuary with a name on it, that person's being remembered. And it it just, I think, for prayers, for devotion, for family memories, it's like us having grave sites. You know, it's one thing to get your ashes spread in the ocean or in the mountains, and that's perfectly fine what some people want. But there's also something about visiting a place where earthly remains of that person are either buried or stored or whatever, as a kind of point of contact. You know, put your hand on the grave. And I like to visit my parents' grave, for example. And uh, I don't think of them as there. But it's a point of contact because I was there at both of their funerals and, you know, they were buried there and so forth. So it's this universal human thing about remembering the dead. Now, that's all background But here's what's important for us. Because they did these names, it becomes what we call a prosopography. Uh, It's a directory of names. So that you can actually look at these 650 uh, ossuaries that have been inscribed. You can come up with a list of all the names that are on all the ossuaries. And these have all been counted. So I'll give you some examples. For example, uh, the name Matthew. Out of all the ossuaries found, 
62 of them have some form of the name Matthew. It could be Matat, Matthias. There are different ways to spell it. Matt, even kind of a shortened form. And then based on the ways, you come up with a percentage. In that case, it's 2.5% of males are named Matthew. Now, that's like doing a random sampling. But here's the amazing thing about it. If we compare names mentioned in literary sources, it could be inscriptions or in books like Josephus, Josephus, the Jewish historian. Think of all the names he mentions. Now, Uh it's random because he's mentioning, oh, this guy did this and this guy, and they're not all famous people. Some are just common people. He, He gives a history of about, you know, two or 300 years of Jewish history. And when you count those frequencies, the literary and inscription frequencies, compare them to the ossuary frequencies, it's almost identical. For example, the non-ossuary are 2.3% of the males ever mentioned in literary and inscriptional uh, sources are are Matthew, and the ossuaries are 2.5. So it's getting very scientific. You can uh, can do this today with names... uh, Actually, the Social Security Administration has websites where you can go up and look at your name. You can look at the year you were born, and it'll tell you, based just on Social Security records, which are pretty good because people uh, have registered themselves and their birth dates, even if they do it later in life. And you'll find, like my name, James, uh, when I was born, I was born in 1946. I'm not ashamed to tell my age. And... uh, (laughs) James was the most popular male name, and I believe it was like 40% of males were named James. Okay, so this begins to give you, uh, and I'm not going to tell you Jesus yet. We're going to get to that, but we can we can tell what percentage of males in the time of Jesus were named Jesus or some form of it, because it's actually the name Yehoshua or Yeshua is the nickname. Jesus is the English for the Greek uh, uh, Jesus. Which sounds kind of like Jesus. So we actually then can get a percentage. So if we find a tomb with a certain cluster of names, and this is what's really important to understand, because we did, I didn't find it, I'll tell you about it in just a second, but let's say a tomb is found as a certain cluster. Let's say it has like seven or eight names. And you can then look and try to figure out. Sometimes you'll know who the father or mother, because it'll say, you know, father of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. But even if it doesn't say that, you get kind of a cluster for that family, and it becomes like a signature. If you look at all of the tombs, these 900 tombs, none of them have exactly the same set of names, which is really important to remember. Because what you're going to hear from everybody that is not convinced by the arguments I'm going to give you and that are in the book is, well, those names are common. So just because you have this and this and this, you know, it could be another Jesus family with a mother named Mary and a brother named James and Joseph and so forth, you know. Uh, But you have to do the the map on that and that's been done thoroughly in the book it's all laid out so that's the background and i think i might barbara you tell me because you read the book and watched the film that 
Jesus family tomb. I'm thinking do it chronologically and start back with the Jesus tomb in 1980. What do you think? Just tell what happened. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't discover that one. So I yeah, I think that, that's, that's really yeah, important that for them. Yeah, that one. And it's, it's yeah, really a, it's a great story. It's a real detective story. So in 1980, <laughs> in April of 1980, bulldozers were building condos about a mile and a half south of the old city of Jerusalem. So it is, it's a hillside that rises up. Today in you know, modern Israel, it's a neighborhood called Talpiot. So you've mentioned, I think, already the Talpiot tombs. That's become kind yeah. of famous. Now, it wasn't yeah. called Talpiot in the ancient world, but East Talpiot, where these were found, So if I'm standing at our dig site, uh, University of North Carolina digs at Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and I'm standing on Mount Zion, which is the highest point in ancient Jerusalem, I can just look to the south and see Talpiot. There's just a little valley between the city, and then, you know, you see the next hill on down, and that's Talpiot. So now it's just lined with condos. You know, it's a hilly country. You're in the mountains just like you see any kind of hill country, houses just kind of making circles around the hills, you know, getting higher and higher and higher up the layers of the houses and then down into the valleys and so forth. So they were dynamiting and bulldozing, and they exposed this tomb in April of 1980. And the Israelis are called in, the archaeologists, in this case Amos Cloner was called in, I think it, as I recall, it was on a Thursday, might have been a Wednesday of, of a particular week in April. And uh, he calls in some two archaeologists to come, and their job is to uh, remove the ossuaries and uh, search the tomb and save any artifacts and, you know, coins or any kind of dating. And the, osh- the bones are dumped out, and they're put in boxes, and they're turned over to the Orthodox Jews for burial. So in Israel, you don't study bones, certainly not in 1980. Uh, There's very much a sense that the Orthodox, there's a burial society, and the Orthodox Jews take this very seriously. It's a Jewish tomb. We're disturbing the dead. But, you know, progress has to go on in terms of building. So they need to be respectfully reburied, but not in ossuaries, just the bones. So the bones are kept in uh, containers, and they're buried in common graves in several points around Jerusalem. So they're basically given new burial places that will never be disturbed. Uh, so literally, just this happens sometimes today, where a cemetery just has to be moved and the dead are reburied. And you try to do as much dis- least disruption as you can. Now... When they're buried in these common graves, they're not keeping a record. So let's say we find an ossuary with uh, the name uh, Jesus, son of Joseph, which we did. Or I did. I say we. I'm using that collectively, you know, the discoverers of the tomb. Uh, we as scholars, we as those interested in this. Uh, we couldn't now locate those bones, but they have been buried. Now, one thing I'll come back to, and you remind me to come back, 
is when they dump the ashrays out, remember they, they've been in these boxes for 2,000 years, significant uh, little pieces of bone stick to the sides, and you'd have to take like some kind of a straight edge, you know, like a spatula or something like that to clean it. They don't do that. And body fluids, you know, because the, the bones are put in and they kind of settle into the limestone. So it's very possible to do a DNA on any of these ossuaries. Nobody scrubs them, you know, and removes all traces of. So keep that in mind because we have done that. But the bones themselves are taken. So the ossuaries were brought out. There were 10, and they were taken to the warehouse. Uh, today they're stored in a place called Beit Shemesh because that's the big warehouse now that has all of these hundreds and hundreds of ossuaries that have been found <laughs> throughout the territory of the state of Israel today, uh, probably over the last 75 to 100 years that the state of Israel would have custody over. And they're literally on shelves in storage, so they can still be studied. But the tomb then is cleaned out. So now that it's cleaned out, it can be sealed up, and it can be left, uh, and you build typically either over it or around it. You don't crush it or destroy it. So under many buildings are tombs. In 1980, the building wasn't going right over the tomb, so they actually left it open. Remember, it just has a small opening, and the ground level was probably three or four feet above the opening, and then there were sort of bushes around it. And so it's not like you're walking around at street level and you go, oh, look, there's a tomb. Let's walk in it. You'd have to kind of know like a little cave that could be, you know, adjacent to one of the buildings and kind of a garden area. So we call that the garden tomb because it's in a natural area. But uh, because kids were going in it and people were even afraid, you know, it was getting trashed and so forth. Sometime after 1980, it's quite a bit after, it was uh, sealed up with concrete uh, that can be removed, but just to kind of seal it off and protect it. And the Orthodox Jews had started storing holy books in it. Not to read. These are books that are really old. They could be several hundred years old. It's called a Geniza. And it becomes a tomb for books, which is also considered sacred. And these would be books that have to do with the Bible and the name of God in them. And, you know, they could be piece, parts of uh, some of the Jewish holy books, prayer books, Jewish study books, and so forth. And you don't throw them in the garbage. These are holy books. You, you basically put them in the tomb. So that's what it has in it even today. Now, when it was discovered, there were six ossuaries. And the six ossuaries uh, out of ten, looking back on it, I would say to me some pretty interesting names. Jesus, son of Joseph, Maria, Yose, not Joseph, but Yose, Y-O-S-E-H, and Mariamne, also known as Mara, or it can be translated Mariamne and Mara, okay, and we'll get to that. We're going to talk about all these. And then Matya, which we would probably say in English, Matthew, 
and Yehuda bar Yeshua, Jesus' son of, I mean, Yehuda Jude, Yehuda's Jude, son of Jesus. So Jesus, Maria, Yosef, Mariamne, Jude, son of Jesus, and Matthew, if you're just talking English. Now, when uh, Amos Cloner, and by the way, Shimon Gibson, the one I dig with, he was just a young, younger man then. He's, he's an architect and a drawer. He was asked to come and draw the tomb, so he was present. So I've been able to talk to firsthand witnesses. Amos Cloner has now dis, been dis, has now died. He's deceased, but knew him well and spoke to him and talked to him many times about what was found there. They didn't pay it. They didn't pay any attention to it. They they just thought, hey, we found other tombs with Jesus, and Mary's a really common name, and you know, it, it's just another Jewish tomb. So it was never published, and the ossuaries just sat there. And in 1996, the BBC wanted to do uh, an Easter special, and so they basically uh, had read in the catalog, the, the Israel Antiquities Authority publishes a catalog of all these ossuaries. They wanted to get a Jesus. And I think there's, in that museum, in that uh, catalog, there's probably about 10 ossuaries with the name Jesus. All over Israel, there's a total of 22, I believe, uh, that I've got listed right here. So it's, it's not that common, but there are some. And they just want it for filming. They weren't saying it was Jesus of Nazareth or anything like that. You know, you're going to do an Easter special. They wanted to go on a real tomb. They wanted to film real ossuaries. And they're in the warehouse, and they said, wouldn't it be cool, wouldn't it be amazing if we could show an ossuary and say to people, don't freak out, this is not Jesus, but this is a Jew of the first century with the name Jesus. And so Amos, they had found two that they wanted to look at, and it was all arranged, and the film crew was there, and the director, and I've interviewed the director since, and very interesting story. And Amos Cloner, the guy who did the Jesus tomb, uh, he said, well, why do you want to see the Jesus ossuary when I could show you a whole family, a tomb with a whole family of names from the New Testament? He quickly added, don't get too excited. It's nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. These names are common, but, you know, wouldn't that be better? And they go, oh, my goodness, yes, we didn't know there was such a tomb. Because you look in the catalog, it doesn't cluster them together where you would notice that. You know, like here's 10 and here's 8 and here's 6, and these are family groups. And so they were all excited, and they, they filmed it. But when they presented the BBC documentary, it was called The Body in Question, and that was the original title, but the London Sunday Times read a huge screaming headline, The Tomb That Dare Not Speak Its Name. Front page, upper fold, Sunday, Sunday London Times. And that was the Easter edition. And that got attention because now the world knew that there was a tomb found in 1980. They assured everybody that it wasn't Jesus. But when people saw the names, wait, Jesus, son of Joseph, Maria, Yosef, 
Jesus had a brother named Yose. It's mentioned in Mark 6, verse 3. Not Yosef, but it's like a nickname, Yose, and uh, so forth. So there was an interest in it. And all of a sudden, uh, Amir Drory, who was the director of the IA then, he's deceased. I knew him as well. Uh, he was getting phone calls. And he said, I'm getting calls about this tomb. What is this? What's going on? And he called Amos Cloner in. And he said, well, did you publish it? Uh, you know, let's, like, I want to know more about it. And he goes, no, no, no. We found it years ago, 1980, 16 years ago. And no, we didn't publish it. He said, you need to go pull all your records, pull the folder, pull the files, and publish this. And so they did publish it uh, just a little bit later, like the story came out at Easter, that I think it was April of 96, and I believe the publication came out like in August in the summer. They really rushed it out. Uh, Amos Cloner wrote it, and it's published now, and we have it. But uh, everything kind of died out. So now it's been published, the big sensational story. Nobody particularly paid any attention to it. But I was aware of it and had heard about it, and you would hear it discussed here and there, and a few people started doing some stats and saying, well, hmm, you know, could this be associated with the Jesus family? Uh, And uh, there was some interest in it. But I started talking, this was in 204. So I'm, I'm partly guilty for making this tomb famous. Otherwise, that would have been it. We wouldn't be doing this show. And Semka uh, Jakobovici, you pronounce his name. He says Jakobovich, but when you look at it, it's J-A-C-O-B-O-V-I-C-E. And he has told me that people pronounce it both ways. He's perfectly good with Jakobovici. So Semka Jakobovici. You know the naked archaeologist from Canada? Many of your... Yeah. Hearers will know this very, very popular show on the History Channel. I think it went for maybe, I forget how many years. Uh, maybe, I don't know, was it a decade or so? He, I know he did many, many shows but covering every aspect of archaeology. and It was very humorous and so forth. So he's pretty well known, but he's also very serious. He's run three Emmys for documentaries. He doesn't just do ossuaries and tombs. But he asked me, about it because he got interested when another ossuary showed up in the year 2000, 2001, 2002, right in that period. And that ossuary said, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, he didn't know about this other tomb, but he did a documentary with Herschel Shanks and Ben Witherington a very good New Testament scholar who believed that the ossuary that surfaced in the antiquities market in 2001-2002 on display at the Royal Ontario Museum in Canada initially and just got very, very famous, very controversial, that having an ossuary with James... See, Jesus had a brother named James. If you go to Mark 6, verse 3, and we're not going to do theology here, you know, were they, were they sons of Mary? Were they, you know, cousins? Were they half-brothers? What were they? We'll just go by the text. 
Mark 6, verse 3, is this not Mary, his mother, referring to Jesus? Are not his brothers here with us? James, uh, first of all, Yosef, Simon, and Jude. So you have these names listed. So there was a question of whether this could be the James of the New Testament, because it also says brother of Jesus. And brother of Jesus would typically mean some Jesus that you would know. Now, that could be the family knowing it, like, oh, that's the brother of Jesus. You know, he's over here. Or it could be brother of Jesus. You know, Jesus, he's getting famous because this is in the first century. All these tombs are from the first century. This burial with ossuaries went out of fashion after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70. So you got a kind of a clock stopping in 70. So anybody that's in a tomb died before 70. So that kind of gives you a chronology. And James died before 70. He was martyred, murdered really in 63 AD, seven years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he was stoned and beaten to death, thrown off the temple walls and down into the Kidron Valley. It's a very bloody story that we get from several church historians, and including the Jewish historian, uh, Josephus. He tells about James being killed. So many scholars thought this could be the Austria of James, but it showed up on the antiquities market, and a private collector bought it. And so others said, well, that brother Jesus is probably forged. So there was a big controversy, and there was a trial, and the owner was accused of maybe doctoring the inscription, and it went on and on. He was finally acquitted of the charge of forgery, and there was original patina, it's called. It's a natural accretion that grows in limestone, little nematodes and little organisms. You can't really fake it. Some people say, well, if you mix some crushed limestone with this material and put it in boiling water and paste it onto an inscription. And it'll then look like, you know, it's got the ancient patina, but that's not how it works. If you look at it under a microscope, it's all these very delicate little organisms that form all kinds of, you know, shapes and the way they move and the way they're, the way they've been uh, encrusted into the, Inscription, and so I'm convinced, and I think quite a few of us are convinced, that the James Usher was authentic, but everybody's not. Some people think the owner affords that last part. Most would agree that it probably said James, son of Joseph, and that would be enough, but if you had brother Jesus. So one of the questions is, and this is when Simca got interested, where did this come from? And he began reading about ossuaries. And lo and behold, he's looking through the catalog. And he didn't even know about the 96 film or anything. He's just interested in, oh, ossuaries. I never heard of them. What are they? What else has been found? And he found this tomb, the 1980 tomb listed. And he said it was it was like the lottery. Okay, I got James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. I got Jesus, son of Joseph. I got Marianne, I got Maria, I got Yosef. And we know two of the brothers, Simon and Jude, lived past 70 AD. So they wouldn't be this, in this tomb anyway. But James would be in it. Jesus would be in it because he was crucified in 30. And Yosef, 
we know nothing about him. So maybe he could have died before 70. We just have no record of what happened to him. Disappears. So Seneca got really interested. And I met him at the uh, exhibit in Toronto at the Royal Ontario Museum. I was in with a bunch of scholars in the evening. He was filming his documentary. And uh, we, we became friends. I called him later in Toronto, and he said, he said, Dr. Tabor, do you know anything about a 1980s tomb that had these other names, these other six names? And I said, well, actually, I do. And uh, my, my friend and colleague, Shimon Gibson, uh, actually was there at the excavation. He goes, oh, wow, really? And he got Cloner's article and started reading about it. And he became really convinced of the possibility, at least, let's say the hypothesis, that this could be the Jesus family tomb. <laughs> and it has to do with statistics. So the reason, what you're going to hear, and Amos Cloner said this hundreds of times, he was interviewed when all of this was publicized, the movie came out, the book came out, the film was out, uh, <clears throat> and everybody said, oh, the names are common. Anybody you ask, the names are common. Don't worry, you know, it, it couldn't be the Jesus tomb. But the problem with that is statistics. So let me give you an example, and then I'll pause and let you probe me a little bit on some of this, but I want to get to a certain point here. <clears throat> if we're in a stadium of 50,000 people, and let's just say it's, uh, we'll make it mostly men, boarding event, we want to make it antiquity, and we say, uh, all those named Yeshua stand up. And we know that about probably, let's just say 4%, I think it comes out 3.8% of the ossuaries and also the non-ossuary inscriptions. Very, very close. The non-ossuary are 3.9 and the ossuary, the 23 ossuaries are uh, 4.0. So, you know, basically that's pretty tight. Say so stand up. So you would have to do the percentage of 50,000. I'm making it 50,000 to make it like the city of Jerusalem in the first century, about 50,000. Uh, Pompeii, by the way, has a stadium that might seat about 50,000. And we have, we have stadiums uh, today that uh, would seat that many. Uh, I'm not sure if the Pompeii is, is that large, but it's a large stadium. So just go with the analogy. So we're in a stadium of 50,000. And then we say, how many of you had a mother named Mary? And if you didn't sit down, well, 40% of women, I'm, I'm sorry, 23% of women were named Mary, and another 20 or so were named Salome. So that's pretty high. So, you know, three-quarters of them are going to sit down, but you're still going to have about a quarter. It'll be quite a few Jesuses. How many of you had a brother named Yose? And we'll even go with Joseph, not the nickname. Just Joseph. And a father named Joseph. By that time, you can do the stats. Uh, Yose is only 0.4%, four-tenths of 1% 
only found 10 of them. And that's Ashurah's end inscriptions, that exact name. If you go with Yosef, it would be about 8%. You see what I'm doing? So what uh-huh. happens is more and more people are sitting down. And then you say, uh, what about a brother named James? Well, James is, believe it or not, a very rare name. It's like Yosef. They're both rare names. And uh, 1.7%. And as far as Ashurah is 1.1%. So just about everybody's going to be sitting except maybe one person. And that would be our Jesus of Nazareth if he was there. Now, people find that hard to believe. But I'll tell you, uh, I was on uh, NPR when this all broke. So a national audience, I won't tell you the the host because you would know her very well known but uh, it doesn't matter and she said but I talked to Professor Cloner and he said that uh, the names are common I said oh that yeah they're they're common it depends on what you mean common you know is four point is four percent common it's sort of common but you know it's not the same as like twenty percent so I said, uh, let me give you two examples. If we're in England years from now and we find George, Paul, and Ring, George, Paul, and John, very common names, and Ringo, even though the names are common, we might say, you know, this could be the Beatles. <laughs> and I said, this is the kind of thing that happens with these rare names. And the other example I gave is my own family, uh, my wife is Lori. I have a son named Seth and a daughter named Eve. Not real common names, but, you know, I know a lot of Seths. probably know five or six, and, you know, you see it everywhere. And Eve is maybe a little more rare. But I said, I'm pretty sure there's not a family of four anywhere else in the United States with those names. I'm almost positive. And yet, James is common. Lori's common. Seth is somewhat common. It's the cluster. And I do know, because I've looked at the records of every tomb in Jerusalem, it's take, you know, I did over a year's research on this. I read all of the catalogs. And I do know that there's no other tomb but this one that you could even argue would fit the tomb of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Because it would have these names, and then it might have two other names, like uh, Shaul or Zechariah, or uh, Yochanan, which aren't known in the Jesus family, you see? So even if I go look at these other tombs that have Jesus in them, it won't be a son of Joseph, or it won't have a brother, Yose, or whatever. So we, we thought that, you know, the statistics would show that this could very likely be Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I'm going to talk about the controversy just a little bit, and then I want to tell you about the other tomb that I think kind of cinched it for us. And you've mentioned it, but we're doing it. We're doing 1980 to 1981. The reason this is controversial is not because we found a tomb of someone we might identify from the ancient world. I already mentioned Caiaphas. Right? Okay, we find a tomb of Caiaphas. That's not controversial. It was incredibly exciting. Wow. The high priest who presided over the 
death of Jesus. Just so happened, uh, road building again, bulldozer uncovered a tomb, and it was the tomb of the high priest from the time of Jesus. What are the chances? Believe it or not, the chances are pretty good. Because if you build all around Jerusalem, on the north, the east, and the south, not too much on the west, some on the west, but the cliffs are more on the north and the east and the south, where they dug these tombs. And and you're building all around. You're going to un- uncover people that are known in the New Testament. I'll give you the most striking example was 1941. This wasn't a building crew. It was actually somebody just found a tomb on their property. I've been in this tomb and to this tomb, not in it because it's sealed now, uh, but I've seen the ossuary. It's Simon of Cyrene, okay, and Rufus, his son. Now, maybe this will mean something to some people, maybe it won't. But in the New Testament, when Jesus is carrying the cross, there's a man named Simon from Cyrene who stopped by the Romans, just in the crowd, and they go, hey, you, come over here. Probably, maybe he looks strong. Jesus had stumbled, and they got him to carry the cross. And Mark, who tells us the story, the Gospel of Mark, says, you know, Simon, uh, he's like the father of Rufus, you know, like we would know that, because this is, you know, the early church. They knew these people. Well, that ossuary has been found. So what are the chances? Now, why wasn't that controversial? It's not controversial. Wow, isn't that amazing? The man who carried the cross of Jesus, we found the tomb and the ossuary in which, you know, he was buried. Uh, the reason it's controversial is a no-brainer because billions of people believe that on Easter morning, Jesus walked out of the tomb, flesh and blood, bones and all, after three days, three nights, or maybe depending on whether it's Good Friday, Easter, or Thursday, or Wednesday, different people have theories of how long. And uh, so there won't be any bones in a Jesus tomb. There can't be bones, because resurrection means that his corpse was resuscitated, and he appeared to the disciples and so forth. And so it was very controversial with uh, Christian believers, conservative Christians that believed that this was a threat to the faith. So this can't be the tomb of Jesus because Jesus wouldn't have a tomb with his bones in it. And the the ossuary Jesus, son of Joseph, did have bones. So Tabor, he's just a skeptical scholar. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. And so, you know, he's trying to disprove the resurrection or whatever. That was the idea. Now, that caused me, and you'll know in the book, I have a whole chapter on this that I hope you found very enlightening. I go through all the accounts of the resurrection, and we find out that we have, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we have Paul, and Paul's really the earliest. And he says that he's seen Jesus as well in a vision. Well, he doesn't say vision. He just says he saw him. He says, Jesus appeared to Peter, and he appeared to James, and he said, and last of all, he appeared to me. He uses the same language. But when Paul describes the resurrection, he describes it as 
a new spiritual body that you would almost picture like the bones are old clothing, he says, and, and the body, he, he, he likens it to clothing. And you take off your old clothes, that's your body, and now you're naked, and you're reclothed with your heavenly garment. This is Second Corinthians 5. He says this very clearly. Then he says, I'll give you another example. It's like a tent, and you live in a tent. That's your body. Plato used that too. You know, you're just in a tent. Now, the tent's not you. That's where you live. The body's not you, right? Then you die, and your body, your tent, is folded up because you're out of your tent. So if it's clothes, you're naked. If it's a tent, you're tentless. You're homeless. You don't have anywhere to live. And then you wait, and somebody says, oh, here's a mansion right here. You're going to live here. You don't live in that tent anymore. You don't say, well, wait, i got to bring my tent with me. And you don't say, i got to pick up my old clothes even though I've got heavenly immortal clothes now, I want my old clothes. I'm going to carry them around. In the same way, Jesus would not be carrying around his fleshly body, uh, but would be transformed in what sort of, I almost want to say, names would be, depends on your faith. You know, if you think he just died and he wasn't really raised, but if you think he was spiritually raised... Finding the bones, in other words, does not mean that he wasn't raised. I'll give you another example. In the Bible, this is in the Bible, it's the main passage on resurrection of the dead, Revelation chapter 20, the last few verses. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. All the sea gave up the dead that are in it. Now think about that. The sea, the oceans, all the people. Who knows how many thousands, thousands, thousands of people over the centuries have died in the sea. Now where and they're gonna get raised. Raised from the dead. How are they gonna get raised? This is what people ask Paul. What kind of a body what do you mean raised? Some people are cremated, their ashes are scattered, some you know, bodies are destroyed, bodies decay, everybody doesn't even have a tomb. So the idea of the dead being raised from their graves is a metaphor. The ocean is the grave. The soil could be a grave. The wind could be your grave. It just means that you will be brought back in this immortal form. So Paul said, I can't tell you what the body will look like, but I can tell you it'll be glorious, immortal, and powerful, as opposed to earthly, flesh and blood, rotting, decaying, you know, the flesh that we have, temporary. No, it's not immortal, subject to death and decay. So the earliest view of resurrection was putting off the old, putting on the new. And then these other views developed later. So if you go to Mark, there are no appearances of Jesus. People don't know that. Because uh, if you open up, say, the King James Bible, you have the Jesus appearing to the disciples. or to, I, No, I'm sorry, to Mary Magdalene. But actually, uh, and later to the disciples and giving them the Great Commission. But the original manuscript of Mark just says they came and found the tomb and it was empty and they fled from the tomb and they were astonished and so forth. And then you go to the next gospel, Matthew, it says that they met, they saw Jesus in Galilee 
but some doubted. So they're having sightings, sightings. And that's a good translation. Uh, You know, people have sighting. It doesn't mean it isn't true. It means that it's not encountering a corpse walking around. Or it could manifest itself in a physical way. But it's not the old body in that sense. Like in the Hebrew Bible, you have angels, and they sit down and eat a meal with you, and then they get up and say, I got to go, poof. They just disappear. <laughs> you say, well, that was a flesh and blood body. Not the way you're thinking of a flesh and blood body. This is the culture that they live in. So they would not think that the bones means Jesus wasn't raised because they've encountered what Paul calls the life-giving spirit of Jesus. He uses that term. He says Jesus was a man of dust, and now he's a life-giving spirit. So after I studied that, and, you know, I'm just trying to take a historical approach. I'm interested in this tomb and, and the names and the cluster. And so I tried to make it clear that the empty tomb does not mean no bones, and here's why. Everybody overlooks this. And Amos Cloner wrote about this, so... The guy who's most skeptical about this being the Jesus family tomb, and he's even Jewish. You know, he doesn't believe Jesus is raised. You know, he's not a a Messianic Jew. Uh, He said it was a temporary burial. What do you mean a temporary burial? The best account we have is in the Gospel of John, believe it or not. Uh, People would think it's later, but if you read the last chapters of John, you can tell that it, it seems to be have many more details and it's just coming from a source that claims to be an eyewitness source whether it's eyewitness or not i don't know but it's different it reads different doesn't sound legendary and it says now near the place of crucifixion there was a an unused unfinished tomb and because it was passover when jesus died let's take the traditional time of friday because we don't need to argue about what day it was I think it might have been Thursday. Other people say Wednesday. Let's say it was Good Friday. And it's 6 o'clock and Jesus is dead. And we're going to eat the Passover Seder that night at 8 o'clock. What do you do with the body? You can't bring it to the house. You've already purified yourself. And so they put it, it says near the cross was this tomb. And what they're going to do, they blocked it up. And then at the first available time, which would be after the festival and the Sabbath day, they would come and remove the body and take it to its permanent place of burial. Now, in the meantime, the spirit of that person could become glorified, you see. And the body would just be, think of it like a a butterfly and a, I mean, a caterpillar and a butterfly. When the butterfly, let's make it a monarch, beautiful butterfly, crawls out of the cocoon, that was its body. You know, it gets encrusted and spins its little tomb, and then it becomes a butterfly and flies off. It doesn't worry, oh, I left my cocoon behind, and the remains of what I was at one point is there, and I need to worry about that. No, you're flying in the heavens now. You're a butterfly. And Paul actually, he doesn't say butterfly, but he says, metamorphosis 
That's the that's the Greek word it uses, metamorphosis. So resurrection to Paul is metamorphosis. It's changing into this spirit being, becoming a spirit being. And uh, that fits with lots of world traditions about death and so forth. And it was part of the Jewish understanding. So, yes, it's bodily, but it's a, Paul actually says it's, it's a wind body. He calls it a pneuma body, a wind body. So it's not a flesh and blood body. And he says it's not flesh and blood. That's what he says about Jesus, not flesh and blood. So why wouldn't the bones be left behind? Now, later, Jesus in Luke and John, he eats a fish, and they see him, and they touch him. Uh, I don't know if that is just people later writing wanting to say he was really physical so you won't think it was a ghost. You know, oh, well, maybe you just saw a ghost. Or... They did believe in those days that a spirit being could appear as a physical being and then disappear again. And that seems to fit the accounts better because in Luke, he's eating with them, and then it says they looked, and he's gone. You know, it's like, whoa, what happened? And the doors are locked, so how did he even get in? It doesn't say he knocked on the door, and they went and answered, oh, it's Jesus. It just said suddenly he appeared among them. So the idea I get is it's kind of like, an angelic being, but much beyond that, because it's Jesus the who they believe was the Christ, the Son of God. But they're not going to be worried about bones. So, yes, that tomb was empty, because they then would have buried the bones permanently, and that was done according to the Gospels. All four Gospels agree. A member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, secret follower of Jesus, got who had connections with the governor, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, Roman ruler, and that he got permission to take the body and bury it. And he would have buried it on his own estate. And our hypothesis would say, well, maybe that is then Talpiot, you know, that he had an estate in Talpiot because he's very wealthy. So um, I don't think finding... The the Talpiot tomb has anything against resurrection, but I can understand why very fundamentalist Christian believers would say, well, I think it has to be the bones. But, you know, if you think about it, when Jesus ascends to heaven, you wouldn't think he would have his internal organs. And Paul says he's not flesh and blood. He says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So I don't, I don't think the early teaching was that it was the flesh walking around, but maybe it appeared that way. Who knows? And now I want to go back to Amos Cloner because I asked him once. I said, "Well, Amos, you think that you're Jewish and you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You're not a Christian, and you think that the tomb of Jesus is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's the most holy spot for." Christians in the world It's the traditional spot of the Death and also the burial of Jesus The tomb and millions And millions of Christians go there And they view the tomb and it's Recently been renovated and so forth And uh, they're Convinced that's it And I said to him uh, But that tomb's Empty right And he goes yeah yeah it's empty they've Actually, recently, they took the slab off and everything. There's nobody there. It's empty. 
Well, Christians would be glad to hear that. Yeah, it's empty. You know, he was risen. But Amos is Jewish. And I said, no, Amos, or I said Dr. Cloner, I think. I said, Dr. Cloner, you're Jewish. So it's empty, and you think it was the tomb, but you don't believe in the resurrection, I don't think. And he goes, no, no, I don't believe that. I said, so it was moved? And he goes, yeah, I guess he would have been reburied somewhere else. And I said, but it couldn't be Talpioto, right? And he laughed. He saw where I was going. <laughs> you know, it, and he said, you know, James, possible, but I think you guys have been sensationalized it, and you've sold books and made movies, and you're trying to get people to believe that that's it when we don't have enough evidence. Now, I never got to ask him this, but I wanted to ask him, if we added James to the mix, the James ossuary, it shows up on the antiquities market. And the Israelis um, say it was probably robbed from a tomb. And then it, this is how ossuaries show up at a dealer in Jerusalem. There are these licensed dealers. And uh, it's sold to a collector. And it does say James Son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. If I could have asked him this, I would have. What if we could show you that the James Ashray came from the Talpio Jesus? Would that make a difference? Because now we got two brothers, the very two that we think died before 70. And then we did DNA on Jesus on the on the we we needed to find out whether the Jesus and the Maria Jesus had a mother named Mary there's a Maria so that could be his mother and, and we needed to find out whether the the two Marys were related and so forth uh, because he also had a sister named Maria they often name you know the sisters as Maria and so we needed to figure out if there was a maternal relationship between the two Marys and the Jesus. And the one that we tested first was Mariamne, because Mariamne is a special form endearment of the name Mariam. It has the Mariamne on the end. I know one other Ashray that has it and then two literary sources. And the two literary sources are referring to Mary Magdalene. So since there's a child of the Jesus in the tomb, which would mean Jesus had a son named Jude, uh, we wanted to know if the Mary Amne was maybe his mother or sister. Because it could be either one, really. Mary Amne is a form of Mary, and it does mean Something like it's a diminutive form, like uh, almost like sweet Mary or dear Mary or, you know, precious Mary, you know, because it's diminutive, the form putting the ending like that. And uh, this is according to Rachmani, who did the interpretation of the name, that it's uh, it's a diminutive form of the name. And so we were able to do DNA on Yeshua and the Mary Amne. And those results, those preliminary results that we did way back in 205, I think, 
they showed uh, that there's no maternal relationship. There's no mitochondrial between, that's the DNA that the mother passes, that Jesus would have had if it was his mother or his sister. See, his sister would have the mother's DNA too. And so we could eliminate that and say, well, she's then a partner of Jesus somehow, possibly a wife. And since there's a child, maybe she's the mother of the child. Now, when you go into the tomb, three ossuaries, we have a drawing of how the tomb was and how the ten ossuaries were arranged. And three of them were clustered in the first niche on the right as you go in. And that's where you typically put the main people of the family. And then you move back in the tomb as you go. But we don't know if it was Jesus, Mary, May, and the boy the son, the kid. We don't know that because we don't, we, there was no record left of what ossuary was where in terms of the names. But I'm almost willing to bet if we could discover that in some of the records, uh, you know, maybe somebody noted that down somewhere and we'd look for it. I think it would be those three. I think it was the family, at least for this family. So I think with James added, you can make a really good case that this is the family of Jesus. And I say that not with any sense, like I explained, of like, therefore he wasn't raised. It would have nothing to do with that. But it would have to do with believing that resurrection was not just like Lazarus raised. Remember Lazarus? Jesus raises them. That's the body coming back. That's resuscitation. That's like somebody being on the hospital bed and going flatline, and then after an hour, they somehow revive them, and they're still okay. And we have many examples of that. You could call it resurrection, but you know what? If you look at the Greek word for he is risen, he's not here, he's risen, it actually just means he's, he's like, lifted up, like he's been carried away. It could mean he's been carried away. And that's what Mary Magdalene says. She goes, where have they taken him? Right? Where have they taken him? Because she's getting there really early, and she wants to be there when they move the body, and they beat her to it. So, yes, she finds the empty tomb. And what's her first reaction? This is in John 20. I went to the tomb. It was empty. They've already moved him. That's how I would. They've already moved him. Read it. That's how it. And she goes and tells Peter and John, they go, what, what? He's gone? Where'd they take him? So I think he was reburied in Calpio, if this is the tomb. Now, I'm going to pause here because I know you have some questions, but that's as far as I could go with that discovery. And I would say it's got a 50-50 chance, you know, I mean... Uh, some of the stats went higher than that. If you add James, I'd say it's 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 like nine. It's in the nineties, like a slam dunk, because James is such a great name. And yeah, James, I, I, says, brother of Jesus, this is like. And so I'm going to tell you later. I don't want to do it now because this is. I, remember, I told you I'm going to tell you two new things that we have. Yeah. Talked. I'll tell you later. We now have evidence 
about where that James Ossuary came from, and it's really strong evidence, and it's scientific. So, okay, well, <clears throat> you I have two. heard all that. They heard all that, and you know your audience. So, And then yeah. we'll talk about the other tomb that seals the deal, but let's, let's talk about this one first. Okay, there are two symbols that I want to get into. There is the... The, the Jonah symbol on one of the ossuaries that talks about, that symbolizes resurrection. And then there's the, the upside down, the, the pyramid with the dot in the center that is over the, over the door, and then it's on one of the ossuaries. And, you know, what do those two symbols indicate? Yeah, okay. Now, the one, this first one you mentioned is in the second tomb, the 1981 tomb, which I haven't talked about yet. So let me go ahead and talk about that. We can do them all together. Okay. And the other tomb, the dot and the uh, chevron, kind of like a, chev- a chevron with the dot in it, that's yeah. the, on the face of the Jesus tomb. So a year later, 1981, April again, interesting that it's April. It's always around Passover, Easter. <laughs> I always thought this was kind of symbolic. You keep finding these tombs on Easter, you know. Uh, really, literally, if you look, I think Easter was a few days from. So in 1981, just 200 feet from the Jesus tomb, let's call it the Jesus family tomb, another tomb was discovered. And Amos Cloner went into that tomb also. And whenever a tomb is discovered, one of the challenges that the Israeli archaeologists have is all the Orthodox Jews, the ultra-Orthodox, the, we call them the black hats, you know, they wear the Hasidic yeah. Jews. They don't want you disturbing a tomb and they'll come and get all around you and start throwing stones and trying to drive you off. And you usually have to get a court order because these are built you know, this is building that's going to go on. Somebody's going to build a condo, and it's just going to happen. But this particular tomb, they didn't want the archaeologists to go in because they were able to build over it. So they didn't want it entered. So when it was discovered, same guy, Cloner, he just had, I think he just had a few hours to go in it, very few hours, and he went in it. And he looked around and he saw inscriptions and all, but he really couldn't record much, did a few drawings. And there was one small ossuary that would have been like for a child. And he decided to carry that one out, which the Orthodox would not like, but he did. But he left the bones in the cave for them to gather. But he thought it was so beautiful and he just thought, well, this is going to be sealed up forever. At least this would be a record. Maybe we can study it, learn something about the tomb. Now, he knew that it was close to the other tomb, but I don't think it hit him that that would just be the next year. I don't think it hit him like, oh, wow, I wonder if this is significant. So that was 1981. So nothing happened all of those years. Uh, that one was, uh, it, I think it was written up. There's, there were eight ossuaries. He took one out, and then nothing happened uh, until we came and looking for both tombs, really, we learned about both tombs, and we came looking for it in 2005. And what we did is we 
learned uh, because of a pipe, what you, you know about it, called the soul pipe, that was over the garden tomb, I mean over the, uh, the underground tomb. So there's an underground tomb that you cannot go in, and we call it the patio tomb because a patio basement has been poured over it, and then the condo with pillars is rising above it. There are pictures in the book you can see. But you can't tunnel into that. It would be way underground and so forth. But we came up with the idea of if we could locate it, because what you have to do when you build over a tomb and leave it, a building, you have to put a pipe leading from the tomb up to uh, some venting within the building. Now, nobody wants a vent from a tomb in their living room. (laughs) But it so happens that the way they constructed the building There's a patio, like you go out of the kitchen into a kind of covered outdoor patio on the second floor uh, from the street, but on the it's on a slope, and so if you go in from the back, it's actually ground level, and the pipe came up to the patio. So by locating the pipe, and the pipe they call it a soul pipe. The the myth is that you want to keep a tomb open for the souls to go back and forth. Now, whether that's just superstition, how old it is, I don't know. Clearly, these ancient tombs weren't invented. But this is a modern custom. That If you have a tomb, it needs to have this soul pipe. So there's a picture of me standing by the soul pipe on that patio in this apartment of the people that own the place. And so by doing a map of the building and getting the building plans and that patio and that pipe and knowing it's going right into the center of the tomb, we could project it down to the basement. And we got engineers and the building people to come. This is a million-dollar project. And we had uh, National Geographic provided the cameras. We had a technician in Toronto build a robotic arm that could be operated remotely. So all we really wanted to do was just, and we had to get permission of the Orthodox where they wouldn't riot. And we said, we're just going to do a camera probe. Just, you know, punch into the tomb from the top. No destruction. We know right where we're going. And we were so fortunate we caught the If we had been another meter over either way, we would have missed the edge of the tomb because the soul pipe is not right in the center. You know, we didn't know exactly where it was. But we were able to get in the tomb. So now we got probably had to go down through a floor, some concrete, some rebar, and we got into the actual tomb. Oh, boy, Barbara. I'm sitting in front of the monitors. We've got three monitors going. There's pictures in the book. And here's this robotic arm, and we've got controls. We can literally move the little robotic arm around. Remember, the tomb's only, you know, say 12 by 12. So it's not yeah. a big, huge thing. And we can go with the camera over the ossuaries around. There's seven of them. And we start going around the ossuaries, and I list in the book all the things we found. We found other things besides the two big ones, the big things I'm going to tell you about. Now, remember, this is only 150, 200 feet from the Jesus tomb. 
It's on the same basic estate. And there's a third tomb there, 50 feet away, that was blown up by uh, accidentally by the building. And you can't see that. It's under the sidewalk. But one, the reason I mention that is whoever owned this property, this was their cemetery. There's three tombs clustered together, you see. Wow. So it shows that it's, a, it's, it's some wealthy person that could have several tombs on their property. And our speculation would be that it was Joseph Arimathea. He's wealthy. He owns an estate south of town. And he takes the body from the initial tomb and buries it very honorably on his own land in his own property. And then when, um, let's see, who would have died next? Probably Mary, maybe, the mother. Jesus died early, and then she would have died. They put her in, and so forth, as the brothers died, and so forth. So, But two of the ossuaries were very intriguing, and this is what you ask about first. One of them has a fish carved on it. A lot of people say, ah, it's not a fish, it's a jug, like a water jug turned up with a pointed end. But it's definitely a fish. Uh, and then we discovered, and this was as the book was going to press, James Charles Ware's Princeton University discovered by looking at the so-called scratches on the fish that it was actually an inscription. And it says Y-O-N-H, you don't put vowels for the last letter, so it's Yona. And I'm telling you, it's like, a, you know how people say to look at a diagram, what do you see, and suddenly you see an old man's face, you know, that kind of thing, and then you look yeah. again, and it's, you know, it was like that. Like, I looked at those scratches a hundred times. I'd even sketched them. But once, it, it's like, you, you'll see in the book, it's the way they curve around why... And I said, oh, my God, that's every, you got the mouth of the fish, you got the gill marks, you got the eyes, and then you got Y-O-N-H, Yonah, Jonah, written across the fish. Now, why would that matter? Because the earliest, most popular Christian symbol, and if this is true, this would be the earliest Christian symbol, is not a cross. Crosses came later. And it's not an anchor Like the catacombs That came later Jonah is the earliest Christian image And it's even in the New Testament Because Jesus tells His contemporaries This generation Will be given no sign Of my divinity Or my Let's say my messiahship Except The sign of Jonah As Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, like a cave, the heart of the earth. And and Jonah was spit out. And if you read the book of Jonah, he says, I went down into Sheol, which is a metaphor for death. That's the Hebrew word for death. So when you're in the belly of a fish, you're in your tomb. That's your tomb. Remember we talked about the dead who die at sea. That's your tomb. But then he was spit up. God had him spit up in the story. So he's resurrected. So that became the most prominent Christian image. 
And today, I've been to the catacombs. We filmed this, and this is in the second film. There are two films. One's on the first tomb, 1980. The other's on the second tomb. And you know what? The most prominent Christian symbol in the catacombs at Rome is images of Jonah coming out of the fish. More than the good shepherd, more than the cross, more than the anchor. Wow. The dozens and dozens of Jonah images. But we've lost that. We don't do Jonah images today. We do crosses and fish and anchors. But they did they did Jonah. So this would be the earliest. And uh, we don't know what is – when you're looking at the ossuary, there are two panels, and the fish is on the left panel. The right panel we can't see because it's blocked by another ossuary. And it's so close, it's less than an inch, just rammed up against it in the, in the niche. And there are pictures in the book. You can actually see how the camera tried to get in and see what's on the other panel. We couldn't see. Uh-huh. I think it's going to have an inscription, and we're going to go in there, and we're going to. We're. I'll tell you at the end about our plans because, believe me, we're not finished with this tomb yet. So anyway, but the ossuary next to it that's blocking half of the one with the fish, we could see the whole face of that. And guess what? It has a four-line inscription that says Dios. Yao, Yao, Upso Hagba. Now, I know I'm speaking gibberish here, but Dios, I think many people could get that, right? Deity, <laughs> God. Uh, Yao, Yao is the word uh, in Greek for Yahweh. So, God Yahweh, O God Yahweh. O Yahweh God, Greek, Hebrew, and then Greek again, raise up or I raise up, and then Hagba. Hagba, if any of your people are Jewish, they know what Hagba means. Whenever you raise the Torah in the Jewish service, that's called the Hagba. You raise it up. So it literally says Greek God, Hebrew Jehovah or Yahweh, I raise, upso. Hagba, I raise, or raise. So there are different ways you put to, put it together, but the way it goes from Greek to Hebrew, from Greek to Hebrew, I love that. <laughs> the way it, It's all in Greek. A Greek word, a Hebrew word in Greek, another Greek word, and a Hebrew word in Greek. So I think it's either saying, it could be saying God, Jehovah, raised him up, or maybe the person in the ossuary had said, put this on my tomb, because if Jesus was raised from the dead, I want to be raised from the dead. So God, Jehovah, raise up, raise up, something like that. The fact that it's 200 feet from the other tomb, I think, and then if you add the James ossuary, which I've talked about, and we're going to say that at the end, we've got to watch our time here to get that in. Yeah. But So I think it's a slam dunk. Uh, I think. Uh, people say, well, how convinced are you that this is it? I would say, like, Chunka would probably say 98% or 9 but <laughs> I, I want to be a little skeptical because I'm the scholar and you're supposed to always say, but, you know, there's no other tomb in Jerusalem that would fit this. 900 tombs have been uncovered. All the names are there. And if you add James and you add the other tomb with these Christian symbols. Now, the, the chevron and the dot, 
Oh, boy. People have made all kinds of things out of this. I tend yeah. to think it's, a, it's represent because you look at other tombs, they have this facade of the pointed gabled roof and then the, the sun, you know, kind of like a sun rising in a temple or something. I think it's temple imagery, but it's the house of the dead because you find it on many tombs uh, and not just this tomb. But other people have tried to see it as, uh, for example, the Masons. You know, you've probably done shows about the secret rights of the Masons and so forth. You yeah. find this simple. It's on our dollar bill. If you look at the eye, the seeing eye that's on our dollar bill. Uh, so people have wondered, because it's so unusual to have this. It's kind of crude. It's not a fine. This is not a wealthy tomb. But maybe they were saying something else, like the sun is rising and, you know, or if it does represent the sun or maybe a wreath or something like that. That's also, though, over the door of one of the tombs, though, and that it's it's very Yeah, um, you find it in many, obvious. many tombs and sometimes on ossuaries. Maybe it is a symbol of uh, – now, some have argued that that, that – ossuary in the film that Simka points out that that's actually just a, what's called a maker's mark where they are showing how the lid goes on. But, uh, you know, we also found it on the Joseph of Arimathea ossuary. I mean, the I'm sorry, the Simon of Serene ossuary. We found it on there too. So, you know, I don't know. But uh, put it in all together. So in case you probably have other questions, but in case we run out of time, I think we have two hours, right? So we have what fifteen minutes left, or a little. Yeah, let's get let's get let's get to let your. Let me tell um, you the big news. Let me tell you the big news, and then you ask any questions. Okay. Uh, let me pull out my sheet on the big news. I've got it here. I've got to find it. The first point of big news is. Your your people can look this up. Uh, you can go to my blog jamestabor.com, which is easier to remember, and just do a search where the little question mark is at the top on the homepage, and put in uh, James Ossuary Talpio Tomb, or just put in James Ossuary. You'll you'll find this article referenced. But I'm also going to tell you how to find it online. Here's the name of the article. It's published in a peer-reviewed journal called Archaeological Discovery 2020. And because of COVID, it just got overlooked. I haven't pushed it much. And the reason I haven't pushed it much, believe it or not, I don't want this tomb to get a lot of attention right now. Now, your show is going to give it some attention. But... I'm talking about I don't want it to get world headlines and have treasure hunters going and people trying to maybe tunnel in at night and, you know, get in these tombs. But Archaeological Discovery 2020, I'll read you the title. This is very uh, scholarly. The Geochemistry of Intrusive Sediment Sample from First century inscribed ossuaries of James and the Talpio tomb, Jerusalem. It's done by, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six scientists 
This is People, Department of Engineering, Department of Chemistry in Poland, Geological Survey in Israel. It's headed by Arie Shimron, who's from the Geological Survey. And it was his idea. And here's his idea, that limestone in a cave absorbs the, absorb, absorbs the soil. Limestone is very porous. So if an ossuary has been in a cave for 2,000 years, if you scrape the bottom of the ossuary, which doesn't harm it, and pull, you know, get a significant little bag of the scrapings off, the soil that is soaked in will be there. And then you can run these geochemical tests that do all the percentages of the different isotopes, you know, how much lead, how much iron, how much potassium, how much this, how much that, all the percentages, and you can cluster it together in a very scientific way. So what they did is they they did a blind test. They sampled uh, a number of ossuaries. Uh, I've got the article. I've just got the front page of the article here, but uh, several dozen uh, tombs and a number of ossuaries, and they didn't even know which was coming from which. And then they ran the geological tests. It's basically like soil analysis. So it's not DNA. You're, you're actually looking, and it's not patina. Our book talks about patina because that's all we knew then. But this is better. This is soil. So a tomb, like these two tombs 200 feet apart, they sample both of them. Guess what? The signature of the soil in the 1980 tomb is not the same as the 1981 tomb, even though it's 200 feet away. Each tomb has its own environment. You know, the way the water comes in, the way it seeps in. And this tomb in particular, Jesus' tomb, there was an earthquake in the 4th century that broke the tomb open, we think, and it filled up with this terra rosa soil. Because the ossuaries were covered all the way, and you never find this. Like the 1981 tomb, the ossuaries are not covered with soil. When we did the camera study, you can see in the pictures, they're just sitting there the way they were the day the tomb was sealed 2,000 years ago. But the Jesus tomb, was they had to remove two meters of red mud. Well, that just, and then when you clean off the ossuaries, that's just put a signature stamp on these ossuaries like you wouldn't believe. And guess what? Then they did the James ossuary, because we don't know where it comes from. And it is such a close correspondence. I'm not going to use the word match because it's not a fingerprint, but such a correspondence so that you look on the graphs that are in the article. They publish all these results. It's peer-reviewed. And you'll have all these graphs. And you'll see, like, uh, maybe a tomb on the Mount of Olives. Here's what the, envir- the chemical environment of that tomb. Or a tomb up north of Jerusalem or a tomb... Other tombs at Talpiod, tombs around Jerusalem closer together. They, you know, random sample. And the James Ashi doesn't fit any of those at all. It just, it'd be like, oh, maybe it's here. But with the Jesus tomb, you see these circles where they overlap and, and it had this very similar environment. So that's new. Uh, people don't know about it yet. I think it is a real slam dunk. And it means that the Jesus, that the James ossuary did in fact come from the Jesus tomb, and now we have James, the brother of Jesus, as well. So uh, 
that's one bit of news. The other bit of news was just uh, just a couple months ago, and nobody noticed it. And the reason nobody noticed it is nobody knows what Armon Hanatsev means. And if you go to Jerusalem and ask anyone on the streets of Jerusalem, a Jew, uh, where is Armon Hanatsev? They would say, you mean Talpios? <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's the name of uh, the region before it got named Talpiot. It, it is Talpiot, but it's in Hebrew. Well, the newspaper account said, oh, they've made these marvelous discoveries at Armon Hanatsev overlooking the city. And what they found are the ruins of an ancient estate of an extremely wealthy family. And it's just yards from these tombs. And now the the estate goes back to even what we call uh, before the uh, Roman period. It's very ancient. So if it was Joseph of Arimathea, and I can't prove that it was, but if it was, it would mean that his family's had this estate for generations. But whether it is his estate or not, it shows that it's a very wealthy area. So these three tombs, one of them blown up, we can't study it, one sealed, and one that we have studied, uh, all clustered together, and the border of the estate, and I'm talking about beautiful carved columns and frescoes, they were found, uh, just, it's been destroyed. God knows when it was destroyed, I haven't followed up on it, because this was just found uh, just late last year, a few months ago. So I took that also as further confirmation. Joseph is spoken of as a rich man. And where would you live if you're a rich man? You would tend to want to have an estate, you know, maybe outside the city. And uh, it would again fit. Now, I'm going to, I told you this before, Barbara, and people are going to think I'm crazy. But I'm going to tell you, tell it anyway because I don't okay. really care because it's true. The family living over the tomb, uh, we took over their apartment uh, basically for uh, a place to have all of our equipment because we were there for a month, you know, drill, drilling the hole and getting the cameras ready and so forth. And they got to go on a vacation, you know, like we founded their vacation. Like I said, this whole thing cost a million dollars. Discovery paid for it. It was Discovery Special. And so, um, but, the, but the house that's right, uh, the condo that's right over the tomb, uh, see the pipe is just on the edge, but the one that's right over the tomb, this is a, a floor of condos. As you go up, I think it's three stories. This is on the first floor. Uh, there's a family name on in front of each door, and we noticed going up and down the stairs that it says Arimathea family. So we were amused and thought, huh, we got this theory it could be Joseph Arimathea, and there's a family named Arimathea living above the tomb. And we laughed about it, and I, I came in from the States and met some kid. He goes, i got to show you something, James. Come here. And we walked up the stairs. He pointed. Now, these are plaques, tile plaques 
stuck into the plaster. Like when you buy it, you get this. It's not a temporary yeah. thing. Okay. So I said, well, I wonder how many Arimatheas there are. And he goes, we've already checked that, James. Sir. You need to sit down. <laughs> I said, what? He said, it's extremely rare in all of Israel. We're, not, we're finding only in Jerusalem this one family, and then they have some relatives. But I forgot where they're from. They're, you know, immigrants, Jewish immigrants that have come to Israel. Arimathea. And uh, we just thought, wow, what are the chances that a family living, living over the tomb on this estate would now be called Arimathea? And we talked to them, and later this was so amazing to people. We didn't really push it. I don't even think it's in the film. I can't remember in the second film. I don't think you've seen that one yet. But we said, what are the chances uh, that this would happen? And a lot of critics said, you guys, that is amazing, and guess what? You faked it. You paid those people to say their name was Arimathea, and you had them put up this plaque. This is not like a little sign you put by your door. This is like plaster embedded into the tile, you know. And if they ever sold it, I guess you'd have to have that dug out in a new one. But anyway, I met the family. Their name is Arimathea. We didn't know them before, you know. And so uh, we thought that was kind of uncanny. And we took it as sort of a tap on the the shoulder, I I call it. I I kind of wonder... What their what their reaction has to be to the fact that that they are they they're living over antiquity. They um, when they bought the place, they got a discount. They told them there was a tomb under, and uh, there's some people that are superstitious and say, "Oh, I'd never live over a tomb." Uh, they are Jews, and so when all this publicity came out, you had people coming and reporters. I mean, you can't imagine all the reporters that flocked to that place, and they didn't like all the crowds coming. But also they thought, well, what if this became proven and this became a holy site for more liberal Christians who wouldn't insist that Jesus' corpse has to walk out who would think yeah. it was a place of veneration. Like if I go to Jerusalem with you, I'll take you there, Barbara, and we'll sit by the tomb. But I've taken dozens and dozens of people there that think this could be the tomb of Jesus. And their attitude is nothing about, oh, well, I guess he wasn't raised from the dead. Their attitude is to just quietly sit there and to imagine and think, was his broken, beaten body placed in this tomb? You know, is this the place? Is this the family? Was Mary buried there? Was James, the brother of Jesus, buried there? And so forth. So the people I've taken, they get very hushed. And they 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 feel, uh, you know, the, the holiness of the place for them. And I think most people are like that. So I think some of the people in the apartments wondered, if it would get commercialized, and I don't think it will. First of all, nobody believes this, it seems like, which is fine. By the well, way, we're going to go I back. Think, I yeah, think, you know, you, I picked a quote out of something you wrote that I think is very true, because you, you said good history can never be an enemy of proper faith. Yes, and, absolutely. 
I think I and, think taking that into consideration, I, I, I would think that that it would be certainly respected, but also a place that that I would want to go and sit if I ever yes. happen to be in the neighborhood. Um, yeah, you know, kind of the, a the, 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 Yeah, my my and, son you know, and people visit the tombs of rabbis and the tombs of famous people all the time. And if they admire that person, it's a really moving thing for them to sit at the tomb and think about it. And so all you've got to do, if you are a Christian, you have to get past the idea that it means Jesus wasn't raised. If that's your faith, you can certainly believe in what Paul said. He said, it's not the body of dust. It's a life-giving spirit. And you put off your old clothes Put on the new, so it's not a problem, and it's not the soul. It's not the Greek idea of the soul. That's a different idea. Pa- Paul's oh, absolutely. a spiritual body. It's actually a body. It has a shape to it. But he said, "I can't tell you what it looks like, except that it's glorious." My my guess would be from his description, he doesn't write the Book of Acts, but in the Book of Acts, he sees it as a kind of a very bright light. And also when yeah. the disciples see Jesus transformed, the so-called transfiguration in Mark 9, it says his clothing was as bright as the sun. You know, this idea of just shining in its strength. So it's more brightness is the idea you get, not a physical body walking around. Like oh, you would yeah. not call a revived corpse Glorious in the sense that he's no. using <laughs> And he no, does listen, say we, we, that when Jesus, when Jesus returns, he, and he uses metamorphosis, he will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Change it. Well, if you change it, the residue stays behind the bones, you might oh, say, yeah. the flesh. Yeah. Well, you don't well, take that. Listen, we are out of time. Um, okay. You have done a magnificent well, job. Yeah, we covered uh, pretty well. Get the book, The Jesus Discovery. It's on Amazon. If you don't like reading, uh, you can listen to it. And also, uh, it's Kindle. I think the hardback sold out, but the paperback is very reasonably priced. It's a thrill to read, and it covers more than just the tombs. It does resurrection, it does James, it does Mary Magdalene, was Jesus married, mighty had a kid. It does everything, but it builds it around the tomb. It's a great book. And you you can be found at jamestabor.com, and everything is available there. Thank you so much for hanging with me through all of our technical difficulties. Okay, I'm um, glad we finally did it. Very good. Absolutely. Uh, We'll do it again. (laughs) <laughs> we'll do it again Thanks. And we're going to go back yep. in that second tomb And get the ashrays out And then we can really study them oh, And we're wow. going to do more DNA too More DNA So Fantastic well, Lots well, to come until, until next time then I want to thank you And I want to um, Thank everybody for hanging with us Since we had to hop around to get this on air But it's here now and please go back and listen and buy the book. It's a fabulous book. Good night, everybody.